me tell you a story, and most of you know the story, but uh, let's, let's jump on in. This is about two brothers, and it's twin brothers. Do we have any twins in the house? Any bio- we have. Oh, yeah. How's it going? Are you guys close? Do you have, like, some weird connection, too? Like, you dream the same dreams, and you feel each other's pain and all that kind of stuff? Isn't that weird? It's like there's something about twins. There is a, like, I have a sister, and I'm close with her, but there's something about twins where the bond is even tighter, and the bond is even closer, and it's, it's, it's very strange if you've ever been around them. Like, they tend to marry the same type of person. They like the same type of food, and they finish each other's sentences. It's a very tight bond is that what twins have. And in the Bible, we have a set of twins that are actually polar opposites. We know the story. This is the story of Jacob and Esau. And growing up, and honestly, even in up to uh, my college years, I always had a problem with this story. I never really quite liked the story, probably because I didn't really like Jacob. I don't like his character. I, d- I just, I never really liked Jacob. And, and uh, so he, Jacob and Esau are the children of Isaac. And Esau is the older brother. Esau is the heir. And one of the things that we don't quite get about ancient cultures is the firstborn is everything. And Esau is the firstborn. And when they come out, Jacob is grabbing his heel. And there's a lot of word studies on the actual name of Jacob. But Jacob translates basically into heel grabber, uh, liar, sneak, wimp, like just mama's boy. That's basically the definition of Jacob. And there's something about him that gets God's attention. And there's something about Esau, something about his free will that pushes God away. Have you ever pushed God away in your life? And then this message is for you. Let's just, let's just learn from the Bible. Let's learn from this experience. So, you know the story. The two twins are not alike. They're very different. Jacob is, I, I don't mean this as a joke, but Jacob is a mama's boy. Like, he, he, he stays in the tents, and he doesn't have a sunburn because he's, like, indoors all the time. And he's learning craft from his mom while Esau is learning trade craft from his dad. Where Jacob is, and we don't know quite, like, I'm assuming he's fair, but we don't know exactly what his complexion was. But we do know Esau's complexion. We do know Esau's hair color. Esau was red of some sort. And he definitely was a redhead. Isn't it interesting to think about a, a, you know, a young Jewish boy as being redheaded? And to make matters worse, like, he had red hair everywhere. And I think this is probably why I identify mostly with Esau, because he's got hair everywhere. And he's like, he's like a man's man. He's hunting. He honors his father. He's a, he's a provider. 
And he comes in from a long hunting trip. And he's exhausted because he put in, I don't know, how do you feel after you put in a 12-hour day? You've worked all day long. And not only is your body shot, what else goes when you've been working 12 hours a day? Your mind goes. Your, your mind is not as sharp, and you can't make good decision, decisions when you're exhausted. And Jacob knows this. And so when his brother comes in from a long day of work, well, I'm sorry, when Esau comes in from a long day of work, and when Jacob is basically knitting with his mom in the tent, it's true. I mean, I know it's funny, but it's probably what's going on. Jacob approaches them and says, are you hungry? And he says, I got this big bowl of lentils, the bread, by the way. Esau says, I'm, I'm just dying. I, I'm like, I need some food. I, like, I'm shaky. I'm so hungry. And Jacob says, sell me your birthright, and I'll give you this bowl of food. And Esau does it. So there's a momentary lapse of judgment because, one, he's so exhausted, and he, he takes the bowl of food, and he sells his birthright. I mean, was he serious? I don't, I, it's actually not the point. Like, he could have been joking around. He could have been just, like, faking it. Like, okay, yeah, whatever. I'm just hungry. Whatever. And I'm, I'll play your little game because I'm starving to death. And he literally sells his birthright to his younger brother. Now, it gets even more complicated. And you know this story from Sunday school. How many of you know this, this story from Sunday school? All right, good. Mom and dad did a good job, and they took you to Sunday school. Because this is the best part. The best part is they, uh, Jacob hair on his arms and on his back, and then he, he goes to his father, Isaac, and says, give me your blessing. And so he's pretending. Once again, he's lying. He's heel grabbing. He's backstabbing. He's being a sneaky little conniver. So, like, buying the birthright wasn't good enough. He wants the blessing. And then mom, of course, is all in the mix because she's orchestrated the whole thing. And Isaac blesses Jacob. And there's a transfer of that power. Again, things that doesn't necessarily make sense to us. Scholars believe or suspect that the red bowl of lentils is actually funeral food. And they think that Abraham might have died. So Esau comes back, gets information that grandfather has died, and they think that that might have been the case because, I don't know, somebody discovered that serving red lentils is a sign or is a, is a meal that you give at funerals. And so the idea here is that Esau willingly gave up his birthright for food. And what is the birthright? The birthright is a, it's not just money that we're talking about here, although that is in play too. The birthright that we're talking about is a spiritual inheritance. It's actually an encounter, the, the opportunity to encounter God. 
the opportunity to actually, kind of what we've been talking about in the series on Matthew, the opportunity to experience heaven on earth. We are so blessed. We are so fortunate. We are so lucky that we have the opportunity to experience heaven on earth, each and every single one of us. It's something that's not just set aside for special people. It's something that's not set aside for prophets and, and sages and wise guys. No, no, no. This, this ecstasy is available for all. But not in the Old Testament. Prophecy. The, the ability to lean into God's very voice and to, and to hear his will, his divine will, uh, the, the prophetic word that is more than just the rules that are in the book, the, old, you know, the Ten Commandments and all the Levitical laws. See, it was only the prophets that could channel God directly. Only the prophets. The other people didn't have the same opportunity as the prophets did. But we do. Do you know that you have the gift of prophecy at the tip of your fingers? Like you can fathom all the mysteries of this world. Isn't that a crazy thought to think about? Like you can even, yes, you can discern what God's will is for your life. Like even the, the minutia. By now, hopefully you have a moral compass and you're able to figure out what, what, what's wrong and what's right, right? Hope, right? Please. I mean, you know that stealing is wrong. I mean, I know it's in the book. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Slandering is not right. Murder is not right. Like, just, I mean, we know these things. It's almost like you don't even need the book to tell you these things. But what you do need is you need that, that powerful prophetic voice that only comes from heaven. And we get it. We don't need an Old Testament prophet to tell us what to do. We have a prophet, we have a priest, and we have a king, and his name is Jesus. So these are, this is, this is the inheritance, that special connection to God that is only reserved for God's people and only reserved for specific leadership. And that's what Esau gives up. That's what the firstborn gives up. Did you see what it, like, why couldn't he have just gone another day? Why couldn't he have fasted another day? Why did he have disdain for his very inheritance? The short, I think the short answer is, we, this is what we got to get. Like, a how in the world, Pastor Josh, does this apply to my life? I'll tell you. What do you value more, materialism or spirituality? What, what's more important to you, the security and the comfort of the here and now or just the opportunity and the chance to literally stick your head into heaven? And then we see this. Like, I mean, as the transfer takes place, as the impartation of Abraham's blessing gets, gets bypasses Esau and goes into Jacob, 
you see Jacob begin to experience heaven, like, almost immediately. I mean, he's on the run now. Like, he's, like, in big trouble because, like, rightfully so, Esau wants to kill him. Could you imagine if one of your relatives, like, stole your inheritance? Been there, right? It's very painful. Like, I've, one of the things we have to do in pastoral ministry is pastor families through this kind of junk. It's like one of the worst things that you could go through is when somebody, a close blood relative, like steals your, your inheritance, steals your money. It is, it, the, the wound is so deep and so painful. But there's more to money, folks, by the way. Anyway, Jacob has got to run for his life because Esau, I mean, you thought he was red before. He's like really red now. Because not only did Jacob get the spiritual inheritance, he got the money too. And he runs, rightfully so. And he flees the area. He flees, he flees the family. But because he desired the kingdom of heaven so much, it literally opens up to him as he's having a little dream in Bethel, lays his head on a rock. And he gets this vision quite, I mean, it probably actually happens. He's probably able to actually see in the spirit an angel ascending and descending on, you know, this escalator, Jacob's ladder. And they're coming down to earth to do God's will, to encourage God's people, to protect, to give information. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing vision. He's like, oh, my gosh. I am, Beth, uh, Bethel means God's house. Beth-El, house, and El is God. I'm in God's, this is this very place. I didn't, and he says this, I didn't recognize it before, but now I see that this is where God dwells. Have you ever had that experience? It happens in church quite a bit, where people all of a sudden wake up to the reality that, oh my gosh, God's here. I've been coming here for two years, and now I feel something that I've never felt before. It's here. It really is. And it's in your heart, too. And it could be more so in your home if you steward well what God is doing. Your house can be the house of God as well. Jacob has an actual encounter with, it's really mysterious, with God himself. He wrestles with God. That's what, and then he has his name changed to Israel, which, which Israel means those that wrestle with God. Are you wrestling with God? It's okay. We can wrestle with God all day long. It's completely okay to wrestle with God. But you've got to realize one thing. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. And, you're, and, and hopefully you will submit to the Lord. Like Jacob goes all night with him, all night. And just when he thinks that he's got God under control, just when he thinks that he's got God in a good arm bar, I got God and I'm able to tell him what to do with my life. I'm going to make God fit into my life, rather me fitting into God's will. Have you ever tried to put God in a box? Have you ever tried to have him bend to your will. Hmm? 
it's just a very simple gesture, very simple movement that the Lord takes. Probably, you know, some think that it could have been Jesus himself, but a very simple movement. And the angel of the Lord is what it's called. The angel of the Lord touches Jacob's hip, and it just blows his hip right out. And for the rest of his life, Jacob walks with a limp. Yeah. Cool, I think. You can't win wrestling with God. But you do have platform and permission to have those kind of conversations with him. And then open heaven happens in Jacob's life, or now Israel's life, all over the place. Everything that he puts his hands to, he prospers. He doesn't have anything, but through a divine encounter, because he put God first in his life. Again, this is the little liar, sneaky guy that no one likes. At least I don't like him. He puts God first. He gives God the tithe. And everything that Jacob touches prospers. Everything that he does, it just not just doubles, but just multiplies. There's this exponential return that makes absolutely no sense. It's as if God's involved in it. Wouldn't it be amazing if God was involved in our everyday work life. Could you imagine what would happen to your career if we surrendered ourselves, if we humbled ourselves, if we chose to walk with a limp and to put God first? What could he do in our practical lives? Could you imagine if he just started like multiplying goats and sheep like he did for, and you don't need a bunch of goats and sheep in your house, but could you imagine if he did that? Could you imagine if you had, because God gave him a divine strategy open heaven into his finances. It's really cool. Now, this part doesn't fit the, the, the message per se. Can't, I can't leave it alone because it, it's, it's one of the most touching moments of the Bible. Israel, Jacob, now Israel, becomes a very wealthy individual. Having absolutely nothing except for his spiritual inheritance because he had to leave his actual, tangible money inheritance behind. God has blessed him beyond anything that he could possibly imagine. He even has two wives. I'm just kidding. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Marina. Okay, so by the way, that is, n that nowhere is that, was that God's will. That was Jacob's bright idea. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you should have more than one. Or more than, I know, drama. Could you imagine? Could you imagine me with two wives? <laughs> I, my, my wife's not in here. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> so here's a touching moment. He's on his way back home. And Israel has to have a reunion with his brother that he hasn't seen in years. His brother that he betrayed, his brother that he stole from. They haven't talked in years. And he comes back with a small militia, lots of donkeys, lots of camels. I mean, you know, let your imagination go wild on this. He's, he's a rich man now. 
And as he gets closer to this big open field, this plain, he sees Esau off in the distance, and he, or he sees the camp off in the distance, and, he, and like, he, like, he doesn't, he like, it's keeping him up all night long. Like, how is my brother going to respond? He went, last time I saw him, he literally wanted to kill me. How is he going to respond? And Jacob keeps um, sending him gifts. Like, he keeps, like, you know, putting some gifts in the mail to him. Gold, and I don't know, but just trying to butter him up, I guess. And every time Esau would send it back. Because here's the thing about Esau, he's now rich too. And they meet in the field. Jacob never says sorry, by the way. Jacob never asks for forgiveness. He doesn't actually verbalize, will you forgive me, Esau, for stealing from you? He just goes and kneels before him. And there was this moment, like, I wonder what was going through Esau's mind. Do I kill him or do I embrace him? You ever had that impulse or that feeling? Do I kill my kid or do I embrace my kid? Oh, my gosh. You know that feeling, right? Again, there's this, the reconciliation of Esau and Jacob. Powerful. And two nations come out of it, the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom. Edom also translates to red. It's the red nation, a little bit south of the Red Sea. Um, they become an influential political force. Some theories, and again, I love conspiracy theories, but in the Talmud, another Jewish text, some theories speculate that the Edomites are the progenitors of the Europeans. Could be. Why not? So if you're a European, which almost all of us are, we might have some Edomite blood in us. Interesting, right? All right. There's your Old Testament story. So let's look at Matthew. And uh, Matthew chapter 14 think I can do it, folks. Let's see how well we do. Matthew chapter 14. And we'll start off on verse 6. Last week, Mago talked about there was a shift that took place in the ministry of Jesus. There, there, was, a, there was a defining moment where the elites and the, the religious and the institution rejected Jesus' teaching. They said, basically, we're not getting on board with what you're doing. And then there was this hostility towards Jesus that began to bubble up within the high levels of leadership inside of Israel. And then this is part two of the pivot point in the story and in the drama of Jesus. Verse 6. You know, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I'll put the pieces together later. On Herod's birthday, uh, this is not Herod the Great, by the way. This is Herod Antipas. Did you know that there are four different Herods in the New Testament? And there, So there's one right there. Herod the Great, raise your hand. There's Herod the Great. So we're not talking about him. We're talking about his crazy son. And by the way, they're all crazy, but this one was the best by far. He built all the amazing, uh, the, the, all the amazing uh, structures in Israel at the time. 
So whenever you see the wailing wall and you see all the Jews wailing at the wailing wall, that guy built it. The guy that wanted to kill Jesus. <laughs> On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked for. And prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Yeah. I, I was going to bring a picture of that one, but I decided not to. There's like, just look it up. There's like a lot of great pictures of this. But like, it's probably more appropriate that they're on a heavy metal album cover than in church. I don't know. It's a Bible story, right? Anyway, um, that, yeah, give me the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed because of his oath and uh, because of the dinner guests. He ordered that the request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. Isn't this kind of disgusting? Who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came and they took his body and they buried it. Then they went and they told Jesus. They traveled about a hundred miles to do so. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them, and he healed the sick. Now, it is my, it is my bent or it is my belief that John and Jesus were close. They lived in different areas of Israel, so you know, they didn't necessarily grow up together every day. But in order for you to be a, a good Jewish person, you had to go to Jerusalem to go to the festivals. And if you're going to go to the festivals, you're going to stay with your relatives. And so these two probably grew up together. They're basically the same age. It's six months apart. This is a turning point. Because John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. Interesting, huh? He's, he's an Old Testament prophet. I know he's in the New, New Testament book, but he's the last of the line of prophets, who hear directly from God. His message was, prepare a way from the Lord. Repent of your sins. The kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus picks up this message, where John's message was, repent. Get your act together. Get your life in order. Figure out what your priorities are when it comes to the things of the Spirit, because Jesus is coming. The, the, the anointed one is coming. The Messiah is coming. Prepare a way in your hearts for the Lord. And Jesus' message, not that he doesn't talk about repentance, he does. But his main message is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' number one message was the kingdom of heaven. Here's the humanity of Jesus. Because he's, again, I believe he was close to John. And I believe he wanted, he's like, I'm out of here. I need to go away. I need to go away to a solitary place. Why? Because I think he needed to mourn. Why? Because I think he needed to figure things out. I mean, it's kind of that Jesus needed to figure things out, but he, like, this was a big deal. 
And so Jesus is like, okay, I got, I'm hurting inside. And we do know that Jesus hurt. We know that he was a man of sorrows. We do know that he had compassion and empathy for his friends. One of the greatest you know, verses in the Bible is Jesus wept when Lot died. I mean, when Lazarus died, sorry. Jesus wept. And so I believe that Jesus was trying to get away to weep. And he can't. He can't. Because the people won't leave him alone. Verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Isn't that, isn't that a great verse? You give them something to eat. You do it. And I, could, I, I mean, could you imagine the response? And this isn't their first rodeo, by the way. This has happened once before, where they fed 5,000. So Jesus has already instructed them. He's already discipled them in the area of miraculous food ministry. You give them something to eat. You know how to do it. I've already taught you. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. And he says, bring them here to me. He said, and he, as he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up into heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. This is what we need to get into our heads. Uh, did he give thanks before or after the miracle? He gives thanks before the miracle. That's so hard, isn't it? Your body's sick. You got something going on. You have a disease. God, thank you for healing me of this cancer. It's very important that you say this cancer and not my cancer, by the way. Yeah? Yeah? You see what I'm saying? I thank you in advance. I thank you right now for getting me off of the prescription drugs. You notice I say, I thank you in advance for getting me off of my drugs, off of my pills. Look, I know you need your pills. You know that when I had my stuff, I had to take pills. Don't call them your pills anymore. They're pills that you have to take, prescribed by your doctor. But they are the pills, they're not your pills. They're not your identity. Come on, you see it? What you voice and how you say it and the words that come out of your mouth, look at this one next week, but the words that come out of your mouth will actually give power to the things in your life. And what doesn't need any more power in your life, beyond what they can do to help your body, what doesn't need any extra power are your medications, specifically the opioids. I know this personally. Don't give it any more power than its ability just to kill the pain that's in your body. It is the pill. It is not your pill. Jesus is your healer. And he is your Lord. That needs to be the, the condition, the attitude of the heart. 
They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up the 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left. And the number of those who ate were about 5,000 men. Oh, I got my numbers mixed up, sorry. And besides women and children. Uh, so if you 5,000 men, if you add women and children, 1,500 folks, maybe more. At a minimum, 1,500. 15,000. 15,000? See, this is why I don't do well in math. <laughs> 15,000. That's a mega church. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of them to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up to the mountainside by himself to pray. Gosh, guys, this is important. So important. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat had already uh, already considered a distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because of the wind was against it. And during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, they cried out. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And Peter got out of the boat. Let's get out of the boat. What does it look like for you to actually get out of the boat? Figuratively, literally, like I'm not saying you go find a boat and jump out and try to walk on water. But fig, like, figuratively, what does it mean for you to get out of your comfort zone, to take a step of faith, to take a risk, to step on some water? He walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. But when he saw wind, he was afraid. When he saw the, the, the turmoil of life, he became afraid. And he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand. He caught him up, and he, he said, you of little faith. I'm going to talk about this in a second. Why did you doubt? Okay, let's just pause, because, like, Think about this for a second. Peter walks on water. I mean, he took at least a few steps, right? He was able to get out of the boat, and, and it just, it, he stayed on top of the water. Like, in and of itself, that's an amazing feat, right? I don't know. Like, when I was in junior high, I, I just, like, I started practicing walking on water. I don't know why, but I did it in my, you know, backyard in my pool, and I just I tried so hard. Like, oh, I must have sin in my life. I probably should ask for forgiveness or something. And I tried again. Oh, I don't have, you know, I'm not reading my Bible enough. And I try again. I kept on trying and working really hard to walk on this water. Like, oh, my faith must be lousy, so I'd walk again. And just, you know, every single time I'd go in. So I think it's a pretty big deal that Peter actually pulls it off. Like, I'm impressed. Aren't you impressed? And what's Jesus' response? Oh, you of little faith. Come on, Jesus, give the guy a break. Could you imagine if you did that to your toddler that's walking across the room for the very first time, taking your, his first steps of life, and, you know, he, he falls and crashes into the coffee table, and we're like, you could have done better. <laughs> right? Like, that's a parenting fail, and everybody knows it, right? 
You know, I expected more of you. You could have, you could have got a couple more steps at least. And Jesus is like, oh, you have a little faith. That's, that's pretty rough, isn't it? Because we all know that Peter is basically emotionally stunted anyway. His uh, emotional intelligence is probably that. Well, he's not that far off of being a teenager anyway, is he? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those that were in the boat, they worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And this is what I love. It's a nice little fit in the message, but I think it's great. When they had crossed over and landed in Gesserna, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him, and they begged him, to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. Do you remember this story? It's not the first time this has happened. They heard news. They heard news from the woman that had the issue of blood. All you've got to do is you just got to get into proximity to Jesus. And you don't even need, it. You don't even need to, to have him lay hands on you. You just need to touch his jacket. It's the power of the testimony. Oh my gosh, if you have a testimony where God has done something in your life, share it, get it out there, amplify it, make sure it's heard. It will increase faith. There is power in the testimony. Like this, this word, again, it traveled a hundred miles. There are no telephones, there is no internet, there's no texting or tweeting or any of this stuff. It's all word of mouth. Like, all you got to do is touch his jacket and you're going to be healed. And what was the result? And just a few people got healed. Some people thought that they were healed, but they really weren't. Uh, there was placebo effect going on, right? They just had a, rough, a rush of endorphins, and they, you know, it, but it, it came back anyway. No, no, no. Every single one of them was healed. Again, there was this tenacity for spiritual encounter. Like, oh my gosh, I've got to wrap it up. Band, come on up here. There was, this, there was this hunger. Last time I looked at the clock, I had like 20 minutes. All right, as they're on their way up, I want you to hear about the character of Jesus because it's all highlighted in what we just read. Jesus is compassionate. He says, uh, don't send them away. You go and take care of them. Jesus is highly relational. Like, he, he will literally walk on water to get into your boat. He will literally, he will go the distance to be around you. Jesus is encouraging. Don't be afraid, he says. Have faith. Have courage. You can do this. You can walk out on water. And the other thing is that Jesus is highly accountable. Did you catch that? He says, you do it. You go out and do it. Jesus says, your faith should be a little bit stronger than it is right now. Let's work on this. Jesus is highly accountable. Now, the reason why I told the story of Jacob and Esau is because Herod, Antipas, not Herod the Great, Herod didn't belong on the throne. 
history books, Josephus, the Bible. They call the Herods, all four of them, call them all the king of the Jews. But they're not. They are all imposters. They're not even Jewish. They're Edomites. They are the descendants of Esau. They're not the descendants of Jacob or Israel. They're, they're counterfeit kings. The reason why I brought it up and the reason why I told you about the characteristics of Jesus is because we need to know who's sitting on our thrones of our hearts. Do you have King Jesus sitting on the throne of your heart? Is he compassionate? Is he highly relational? Does he hold you accountable for everything in your life? We don't like that one, but that's who Jesus is. That's who King Jesus is. A false king, a counterfeit king, is one that will trade his soul, that will trade spiritual encounter for a bowl of soup. They will trade encounter with God for material gain. That will trade intimacy with the Lord, or as you saw in Solomon's dance when she wanted John the Baptist's head, for perversion. Who's the king of your heart? Who's the king of your soul? Is it you? Are you sitting on your own throne of your heart where you call all the shots and you don't let God in? Do you have a counterfeit king that says, you know what, this is okay to do and uh, because I'm a religious spirit, I can, you know, this is okay, but that's not okay. And we'll let you slide over here. We don't need accountability in your life. It's a counterfeit king. Jesus is very loving, very caring, very compassionate, and he heals everybody. Yet he holds us to a higher level of accountability depending on where you're at. The reason why Peter said, oh, you, Jesus said to Peter, oh, you of little faith, is because, yeah, Peter should have done better. And Jesus knew it. He should have done better, and Jesus knew it. Where does that put us? Let me get the ushers to come to the front. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, right now, I just thank you so much for your presence. And I pray right now that we will just do an honest work and an honest look at our hearts. It does King Jesus sit on our throne? Or do we have a counterfeit? Jesus is the perfect king. He's the perfect Herod, if you will. He's the one that belonged on it, not Herod. Father, right now, I pray you just open us up to a new reality of who you are. I pray that we will be honest to your direction and your guidance. And I pray right now we'll even be obedient to your call. Show us who you are, Lord. God, may we have more of a desire like Jacob did in comparison to Esau. May we see the things in the Spirit. May we gravitate toward them. Bless this offering in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.